Jennifer is my soul sibling, and I don't know how to introduce her, you know, better than this. Uh, we know each other for the last six months, I guess, six or seven months. We met in Coach taught me certification training, and both of us did our certification together. I think your introduction would be better explained if you tell us what are your current projects. because i know you have been working so hard on this one particular <laughs> thing yeah so my current projects are um so i am a life coach and a comedian and um during the pandemic at least in the us all theaters were shut down so i had to pivot my business and that ended up being a blessing in disguise because i ended up finding some new ways to serve my market and my current projects are i work with corporations on helping them have more humor in their cultures so that they can have better wealth in the organization what i call the fringe roi and then um for employees i have this awesome course that allows people to embrace their own humor style in a healthy way so that they can get the financial benefits themselves because research shows that um the executives who use humor in the workplace have larger bonuses than people who don't and the number one predictor of divorce is did you lose your sense of humor as a couple so humor actually has some pretty profound benefits when you use it in a healthy way so uh, one thing is which i feel and we have obviously talked about it and i've seen you talking about it to other you know whenever we were whenever we were in any masterminds or you know any group setting uh, humor can be a tricky thing if you don't know how to do it yes talk to me a little about it Yeah, so whenever I give a talk, there's always at least one person that raises their hand and says, "Oh my gosh, this is great, but what happens when the culture is using humor for bad things or discrimination or harassment?" And it's a really delicate subject, right? Because when you talk about having humor in the workplace in our modern culture, people get like nervous yeah. right and so there's a way there's a way you can do it and it starts with understanding what are the humor healthy relationship communication dynamics because a lot of times what gets people to go down the path of unhealthy humor is or what i call unhealthy humor is they don't understand themselves well enough and they feel a little bit more maybe insecure in their job insecure in their relationship insecure in their life and that causes them to kind of have almost this complex where it feels good to have bad humor but if you can help someone embrace who they really are and their humor style and ha have awareness to check in with their audience you can do a lot of work to help people overcome those hurdles so one person or one fictional character comes to my mind when you talk about uh, embracing your humor style and uh, being self aware about it uh, it's that dialogue that hi i'm chandler bing i make jokes when i'm uncomfortable or, wait i'm sorry what did you say so uh, 
the the way chandler bing introduces himself you know uh, hi i'm chandler bing i make jokes when i'm uncomfortable or when mm. he says that i'm not really good at it why can i interest you in a sarcastic comment mm how do you see that how do i see that so they make jokes when they're uncomfortable so that comes from an, a nervousness complex and so I find it interesting when I work with someone to embrace how to be more secure just in life. And that comes from a deep level of coaching work that I am trained in. Like once we get some transformations in that, it's interesting how people become more secure in themselves. They believe more that life takes care of them. And then it's like open season for humor where they can not just do jokes when they're uncomfortable but they can start to do jokes when they are comfortable because they have embraced becoming more secure in themselves but when you're more secure you are more um i guess what the the words i'm looking for is you're more primed to mm. look for the opportunities that have just wonderful humor nuggets without needing to have all the bad emotions around it because oftentimes why people fall oops that's my alarm to meet with you so oopsies <laughs> totally <okay>. i'm on time <laughs> i forgot <laughs> to turn it off before we recorded okay so now they're all off okay um um what i can say is that um a lot of leaders aren't secure in themselves and they aren't secure in that life can take care of them. And what that causes is it causes people to pick on those who are secure in themselves. And a lot of times what that ammunition is, is actually jokes to belittle someone. And I have actually been in talks with like Ivy League instructors in the US and I have seen them speak on humor in the workplace so this isn't something that is just something I made up this is something mm -hmm. that is actually a growing field um and of course I have my own ways of how I teach it because I'm a second city alum so I do have my own tactics that help people but this is a there are many many people who teach this and I was in one of the talks that was taught by someone at Stanford. And I was amazed at how much they did not talk about insecure leadership. Because one of the questions that was asked by the audience was, what do you do when the humor is bad in my culture? And I was shocked that the speaker said, oh, well, then we just have to help our leaders understand that they have to correct their hate behavior and it's no big deal. And I was like, oh, it's no big deal, really? Like in the audience, I'm like, oh my gosh, because it's a much bigger deal when leaders don't get feedback. I mean, how many times has yeah. your boss, when you've had a job, done something really dumb and it upsets you, but you feel like you can't voice it because you got to keep your job? <laughs> Or like in reverse, if it's a subordinate that you you really yeah. like or something, it's complicated. And so, no, it's not just no big deal. 
But I do think that if people take the time and they get the resources to really, this is why I love the field of coaching is because we help people manage their emotions. We help people become more secure. And then when we do that deeper work and we teach the tools, how you can have humor to like have better relationships. I mean, the sky's the limit. Yeah, totally. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for sharing this thing particular about leadership. And I know how much passionate you are about this. And I want you to, uh, I want to talk with you about this in depth more in the later part of this conversation. But before that, I want to understand when did you start getting serious about comedy? Oh my gosh. I got cast in my first comedy club in 2014. Oh, okay. Um, it was April. I had just started my digital marketing job. And up until that point, I had always wanted to get cast in comedy, but I had jobs that had revolving schedules. So I couldn't always commit to the show dates, which was a problem in moving forward comedy. So I take this new job. I have like a only 40 hour week schedule. Like I can work a side job, I can do my thing. And um, within a month of getting hired at my corporate job, I got cast in the comedy club. And that meant that I got to perform weekly. And I started out on Wednesday nights with the people that I performed with. And within about six to nine months, we got bumped to prime time on Friday nights, which was really cool because it meant that we were doing some really good things. But it also meant that I got those reps in, you know, we talk about in coach.me a lot, like getting the reps in as a coach. Well, I was getting my reps in as a comedy professional and, yeah. and specifically that club focused on long form improv, which wasn't mm. close to stand up, but it was a similar feel in that you build a show live on the audience from an audience suggestion which was actually a more beautiful thing because it made me better at stand-up because if I could every night for two years, every week, um, build a show from an audience suggestion and I could sustain that for a long period of time, well, then of course I could write material for a 90-minute <laughs> set. So it yeah. actually ended up being like this really beautiful building the reps, building those muscles kind of experience. And then that experience allowed me to have the chops to audition for Second City, which Second City, in case your audience is familiar, it's it's one of the top um, premium. It's like the Harvard and the Ivy League of um, comedy schools in the U.S. And what's interesting is thousands of people audition a year. And whenever they open up a slot, they only take 16, 18 people. And then mm -hmm. after four months, you have to re-audition to hold your spot. And that, so you have to audition again. And then in your last six weeks, you have to audition your material every week for it to land in a show. So by the time you start, it's 18 month program. So by the time you start, time you've ended, you've probably done at least three auditions with at least 12 weeks of pitching your material. So it's very industry specific. Mm, yeah. And then 
I started out with 18 people and ended up with eight. So it's Ooh. like quite competitive. And so I was very grateful that I had those two years at the comedy club so I could sustain that. that makes so it wasn't just like, like wake up and do this. It was a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a lot of work. <laughs> so whenever somebody tells me that, yeah, I just, you know, like it, it was easy for me or I did this and I did that. And you know, that's how I became this, who I am today they are kind of underestimating or, you know, like undervaluing <laughs> what they would have done. It's almost never easy. Unless you are an exception. But even then, it's not easy. Uh, okay. So, you were doing full... So, when you started, you mentioned in 2014, right? So, you were doing mm-hmm. full uh, improv at, at that time? Yeah, we were, we were given... Um, sometimes it was a half-hour show. Sometimes it was an hour show. Uh, we just got our, our itinerary for the week and, you know, there was rehearsals too. So it wasn't just a free for all, like there was, oh. it's very structured. We had a director and, um, you know, sometimes at improv places, the, it was a real club. So they, and the reason why I say this is because there's a lot of places that do comedy, but there's a lot of places that don't have it so structured so for me it did feel a little bit because I was committed and I showed up and I did the work um, it did feel like a job and one of the things that was harder in that organization is we were treated like employees for this comedy club but we were not always paid oh and so what kind of happened is um, there was always a little bit of a artistic riffraff with some, especially some of the men in the club, because once we had put in our, a year, two years, some men stayed four or five years, um, people got a little bit, I don't want to say jaded, but people got a little resented that they spent so much time and didn't get paid a, a huge payoff. But unfortunately, that's kind of what the better clubs at the lower levels of comedy are like, because you're getting your experience. And that to me was a huge trade-off of if I can do this for two years and be committed and do every Friday night, and I know what that life is like, well, then I know I can do it pro. And so for me, I didn't mind not getting a huge chunk of cash because I I was getting the necessary experience for me to see, yes, I Mm. can do this as a professional. Makes total sense. And so before that, like, were you always funny since like you were a kid? (laughs) Um, In high school, you probably wouldn't have picked me as the class clown. I was, I graduated co-valedictorian, so I was a bit of a smarty pants. (laughs) Um, Uh So I don't think my classmates would have said, oh yeah, Jennifer Doherty's going to go into comedy. But um, at my high school reunion of like my 10 year high school reunion, people were 
um, very thrilled to find out I had gone into comedy. So I don't know if that's because I had the cool factor because I was funny the whole time. I don't know. But I think I would say towards the end of college, I came to terms with that maybe I had a gift for comedy Mm -hmm. because I had one of my pre-med professors tell me, he's like, okay, so I hate to break it to you, but you're going to do wonderful things for the healthcare field. You're going to be a professional and now I'm a health coach. So that's kind of how I built my healthcare career. But he's like, you're going to do wonderful things for medicine, but I hate to break it to you, but you're going to end up in Hollywood because you're so funny. And so that was really the first time (laughs) that someone was kind of like, um, mini intervention here, but like, don't be disappointed. You're going to go a different direction eventually. (laughs) So super interesting that you mentioned that you were a smarty pants. That basically means in normal words that you were a nerd, right? So I totally uh, was science nerd quirk. Yes. (laughs) I totally relate to it. So, uh, Hey, I actually was doing a live session a few days ago and I mentioned there that, uh, for me, how I usually operate is if I have to study something, if I have to experiment about something or experiment on something, the first thing I'll do is I'll buy a book (laughs) about it and I'll read it. I'll read about it. So if I'm like, we have discussed it that I want to, uh, try or not try but I want to learn how to add humor in my whatever I'm doing right in my coaching in my uh, speaking in my writings and what happened since the day I decided I'll not use any abusive words because I considered it as a form of violence I want to practice non-violence so I cut off all the abusive words from my dictionary it's been like eight nine months and 80 90 percent of my humor is like just just flew away I, I don't know how to make jokes without you know being offensive or without saying any vulgar words or anything like that so this these conversations are also uh, also an activity for me an attempt where i'm directly learning from you know my my guests so talk to me about comedy go as nerdy as you want to do Okay, well, I will just say real quick that in comedy, there's a lot of comedians that get used to performing with booze in their system. Mm. And they can't, eventually, after they've spent years in the clubs performing with a warm-up beer or something, they eventually get to the point where they can't book a corporate gig because the only way that they have their confidence to perform is if there's a several beers in them. And so one of the gifts of a director I had that was the greatest gift that I could ever receive was we were at a post-show event and he was like, Jennifer, if you do the work now to be completely okay with the nerves that come with comedy, and you don't placate it with booze, your career will go farther. And I kind of took that to heart. So before and after a show, I only drink ginger ale because the ginger ale, it's not booze. I just get a little, I get to feel like I'm socializing with people. 
but then I don't do it. And then post-show, I usually have early mornings doing work or doing other things. So if the shows go until midnight and there is an after party till 1 a.m. and I have to be at work at 9 a.m. the next day, well, then after the show, I'm not having a beer. I'm having ginger ale to make sure I can get up the next day. (laughs) So it's not just getting used to words and then losing your humor it can also be other substances you are using to cultivate that humor that once you take it away your humor can fly away as well so it's not just it's not just the words that we use it's the habit of what we do to cultivate that way of having humor does that make sense (laughs) i just had a revelation uh, so here's the deal. Uh, another part that I was practicing for the last eight to nine months is that I'm practicing non-violence or I'm trying to practice non-violence in my thoughts and words and actions. Uh, in actions, it means basically, you know, like going vegan and not harming anyone with your actions. In words, it was not saying, you know, uh, like abusive words, let's say. But at the same time, I feel that when you have some anger or insecurities or jealousy or let's let's not use the word you like when i had all those things in abundance in myself it was easier to translate all of that into sarcasm and a little bit of joke yeah because all of those emotions are an insecurity kind of emotion on the spectrum Mm -hmm. they're all insecurity And the humor that pairs with insecurity is sarcasm, belittling. I call it henpecking when you pick on someone and it's just belittle, belittle, belittle. Yeah, that is a close cousin to the insecurity emotions. Now, if we transform ourselves and we become more what I call secure leadership attachment style, when we become more like that and we have embraced a transformational process, now we're open to the more collaborative humor styles. Mm. And when we, that's why it's so important for us to work on our internal so that we are more likely to pair ourselves with the healthy humor tactics. And this is actually why I think most professionals and, and it's, there's no other way to say it than insecure. It's like a psychology term. Um, yeah. It's not to say, because you can still be insecure and be highly confident. Yes. It has nothing to yeah. do with your confidence. It has to do yeah. with how you feel it within yourself and in life. And that is why in insecure, that's why you probably were tapping into those insecure emotions. Mm. And so it was easy to have sarcasm and then you reformed that. And then now it's like, oh my gosh, where's my humor? And it's just because you haven't embraced the other humor styles that go with that more refined sense of self. Yeah. So and another incident, if I if I'm remembering correctly, was so I went on a and we'll talk about this abstinence and celibacy. I was practicing abstinence for one and a half years. And one of the humor styles that I think I had before that was mixing it up with a little flirt, a little flirting. Mm. And for one and a half years, I did not flirt with anyone. Like even if somebody else was flirting with me, I, I would have my guards up. Like I, I resist them. 
Yeah, that's another part. That's another part. <laughs> You're having like all these breakthroughs right now. You're like, oh. Then, I mean, whoever is listening or watching this, if you want to have free coaching sessions or therapy sessions, just start doing this interview series. I interviewed my therapist also. It's free coaching sessions. And and I will say too, if you sign up, you can sign up for my um, community via email on any page of your site, and you also get free coaching tips there. So even if it's not in your budget to work on this stuff one on one, we between the two of us, we have resources. Um, yeah. And if you do raise your hand and want support, well, then there is ways you can do that too. <laughs> sure. And uh, no, it's genuinely that, you know, like it, I had all these questions that I thought I was funny. Uh, I always had people around me who were laughing at whatever I say, or not laughing at, but you know, like who are laughing with me whenever I say something. Or, they were nervous laughing. Maybe, or, you know, like, again, I was not just having the insecure kind of comedy, but I also was like a, you know, like flirt wittiness kind of thing. But when I removed that, I think it was pretty healthy. I'm not sure it was like two years ago, but I think it it was pretty healthy. But but because now I don't have that in the equation anymore, I do feel that I'm not funny or the way I was funny was not probably healthy. But anyway, uh, I want to <laughs> ask you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you know, like really nerdy stuff and we can start with uh, what are the comedy types? One of them, as you mentioned, is uh, the insecure types. You, you use usually berating or, uh, you know, sarcasm as one of your humor styles. Like the handpacking. Handpacking, yeah. So that's more, are you saying like, what are the other negative ones or what are the more positive ones? Let's talk about whatever comes to your mind first in the whole equation. Yeah, so... I don't know. I think of the unhealthy ones, like, and I, I don't think, I think this is universal wherever you are in the world, but yeah. like if, if you grow up in a town or a city where you get bullied in school, you have a tendency to do one of two things. You either overcome the bullying, bullying and you embrace who you are, or you get this superior complex of like, I will never be bullied again. And so then you start bullying and bullying looks differently in different ways. And I think this is why there are so many cultures that at least I'm aware of that have people that bully and do things negatively humor wise in the workplace because I do think that bullying is such a pervasive thing that it doesn't matter whether you're a child or a junior high student or a college student, you can get bullying in the workplace. And so it's kind of mm-hmm. like we have not evolved in our youth and we yeah. take those experiences into our adult life. And then when we become adults, we, we are usually more aware of humor in general. We're more aware of comedy. And so as a result, what ends up happening is, and this is where I kind of nerd out a little bit, is you start to get these cultures of people that are just like you said, tapping into the henpacking, tapping into the sarcasm, um, not realizing that they're leading from more insecure place 
And also insecure places like not being okay with your sense of self ruins relationships. Mm. I mean, there is the possibility that you could be in a romantic relationship. And if you aren't secure within yourself and who you are and love who you are, doesn't matter how much you love the other person, the, the relationship doesn't have a fighting chance to survive. So I'm almost curious to ask you, DePonchu, have you noticed that by having a cleaner sense of humor, do you feel like you have evolved your relationship skills? Oh, for sure, for sure. So uh, I, I wanted to ask you, like, have we discussed the bully thing in our chats before? When we were... No. No? So you just mentioned like 100% what I went through. I was bullied a lot around, you know, like when I was a teenager. And I ended up being a bully uh, by using sarcasm and berating, you know, kind of humor. And since I became really secure, and you also mentioned this about relationship parts, right? That when you are not comfortable, when you're not secure in yourself, uh, I've seen, uh, I would make some jokes and my girl, so I'm actually remembering the last relationship I had, like one and a half, two years ago. And it happened like multiple times. All We dated only for a few months or weeks, but... I wasn't understanding. I was like, this is a really normal thing for me to say. It's a little witty or a little, you know, uh, fun or humor or whatever. And she was taking offense in it because she was not used to, you know, receive insecure kind of humor. That makes total sense. And since I started uh, practicing nonviolence and not trying to judge someone or trying to belittle someone, trying to hurt someone, even with my thoughts or words. Uh, the humor part was a lot less in my conversations, obviously, because I, I still don't know how to, you know, like be funny and clean at the same time. But the relationships are definitely better, a lot better. Yeah, and that's sort of the correlation that I see in my work. And that's also... A little bit why people hire me because um, there really just gets to the point where people have had enough and they want a new solution and sometimes we don't even have to do that much humor work just just the fact of getting someone to enjoy their life more usually makes them have tell more jokes because you're more comfortable in your life. You're more in surrender. I mean, when I was at Second City, one of the top, top, I guess you could say professors of the school said that the highest form of comedy is when you're in surrender, but it's also the highest form of comedy because it's the hardest to do because What people don't realize is when you have a comedy career, you have to have nerves of steel because you have to be okay Mm. with rejection. You have to be okay with rejection from your theater venues if they don't want to book you. You have to be able to have rejection of your audience if they don't like something that you say and you have to redeem it on the spot. Um, You can get rejection by other comedians if you're good and they don't like it. (laughs) I mean, talk about bullying, the bullying in the comedy field, especially with men to women, um, 
is pretty profound. It's like, yeah. it's unreal. Um, I've actually, the worst, like, and you also have to deal with heckling from the audience member. There's, there's some audience members that find it really enjoyable and it's their form of bullying of heckling the person that has the balls to do a comedy set. And sometimes the worst hecklers are other comedians <laughs> because <laughs> they don't want you to succeed. So that's sort of like its own thing. But once you get through all that mumbo jumbo and you can get from a place of total surrender, that's when I'm like, that's when my comedy really lights up on fire and I have actually there was a job interview that I once had in my digital marketing life Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I I had done some coaching exercises with a friend on it to be in total surrender so that I can see myself getting the job you know and I didn't get the job not because I wasn't good at digital marketing but I didn't get the job because the person said to me um actually you're really talented and I want to hire you to be our strategist but you're so funny that I think you should go do sitcoms and because I want you to go be in a sitcom I'm not gonna hire you because otherwise you'll be a lifer here it was the most awkward thing because it was the most money that I had ever interviewed for and it was like the shortest commute I was I had ever had I was like (laughs) internally I was like what (laughs) and but externally I was like do you want to be on my email list like what do you say (laughs) at that point like you're not getting the job because you're too funny But I am I, grateful. It's a funny that. incident. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this funny question, and I want obviously I've been wanting to ask you this. Uh, I was really amazed. So I also interviewed Paul Kegel. He was like maybe in the next cohort than us about the uh, habit okay. coaching training. And he coaches people on ownership. He's an ownership coach. And Mm -hmm. really amazed by this. This is like a really good word that I found, you know, that. So anyway, uh, I interviewed him. And with you, I definitely wanted to ask you, your habit coaching routine was uh, finding humor in your daily routine. Mm -hmm. Am I right? If I'm remind. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Using using it. your morning routine, but then after people had adjusted to the morning routine, I helped them reflect at the end of their day. So um, I really don't think you can have humor in your day without that reflection time because it's how mm. you can see, did you incorporate it? So I start with the morning routine, but then I help people once they've gotten the routine down, I then... Um, help people adjust to reflection time so that they can actually reflect did they actually use humor in their day how did it work did it land how do you find humor in your routine Hmm? how do you find humor in your routine yeah so what I usually start with is like an intention for the day and initially the attention is today is to smile to a new person that like, I, I don't have people like, I say this very carefully. Like I start with people smiling with and engaging with a stranger to help them get up the nerve to be more humorous 
And I start very small because as you know, in habit coaching, you start small and work your way up. And so I start with just that simple task. Now, I don't mean people should go down a dark alley and start smiling with a stranger. I don't encourage that. But, <laughs> and that's a little bit humorous, but I always have to make a disclaimer just, just in case. But like if you're at the grocery store and you've never seen this cashier before, engage with them in a new way. And a lot of times we get so tunnel focused on our own lives and what's going on and our own issues. And, you know, the in-laws are mad at you because you don't want to have them over because you just had them over. And, you know, like that's going through your mind. You forget the basics of like engaging with your cashier. And even if you're somebody that's now ordering your groceries and it gets delivered to your home, well, you can still engage very briefly with the delivery person. And a lot of times the reason why we don't have humor in our day is we're not connected to ourselves and we're not connected to the world. So if you start with that habit at that basic level, what can happen is over time you can impact because you know habits have an, a momentous effect. You will start to A, become more aware of how your humor lands. And then B, you will be able to understand where you like to live on the humor spectrum and how you use that. And then when people take my group program and my courses, they start to understand what are the dynamics of humor to look out for? And what are those things that help you embrace? Like there's different types of humor styles, to be honest. I am definitely someone that loves the one-line zingers. Like in a social event with people, I am not the one that's the center of attention, not in the slightest. I'm usually the reserved one off in the corner paying attention. And then when there's a lull in conversation, I like contribute to the conversation with a one-line zinger. And that tends to be a little bit my humor style. Well, there might be somebody you work with where you're a one-line zinger person, but the person you work with is like a chatty Kathy. And <laughs> if the one-line zinger person can never get a word in edgewise, now we're going to have communication blunders in the workplace. Mm. And so it's understanding that you may have your own humor style but other people may have their own humor style, but we cannot embrace our humor style without understanding, are we operating from an insecure mindset or are we operating from a secure growth mindset? What are, what are the other humor styles? One-liner is one of them. Um, there's quite a few. I mean, there's quite a few different theories. There's like archetypes of comedy, but then I kind of look at for relationships that, um, you know, there's the dry humor, you know, kind of like yeah. the deadpan dry humor. And then there's the humor, this, this might be more the chatty Kathy, but it's got the people talk and kind of an alliteration kind of fast pace. And it's not quite a New Yorker accent, but it is, um, the rhythm of how they speak yeah. is a little like. Have you have you watched Scrubs? I'm familiar with it. I'm not really a fan of Scrubs, but I have seen quite a few episodes. Yes, 
so uh, dr cox i'm actually rewatching that series these days so dr cox is one of them i guess he, he goes on a trail of repeating and you know like staying in rhythm fast uh, yeah. whatever you are mentioning yeah so there are people that that is their natural humor style it's kind of rare because it's kind of a hard thing to keep up that kind of pace but there are some personalities that are really really bubbly that that is kind of where they live in their own humor style so you can imagine if someone is more in dry humor and deadpan and they have to work next to someone in the workplace that's got that they're going to be annoyed and it's a little bit too like if someone's like it's a little bit similar to like if someone's really naturally pessimistic and then their coworker is naturally really positive they're not going to like each other because they're going to find each other draining yeah um so the same thing can happen with our humor styles uh one humor style if i'm right and correct me if i'm you know like on the right path uh so comedy scene in india is growing a lot in the last 4 5 years like it has exponentially grown in the last 4 5 years one person who stood out from the whole crowd was zakir khan and he is an amazing storyteller he has all those you know like punch lines and some anecdotes and all that stuff but so storytelling would would that be a, another humor style So I think storytelling is like another type. I mean, all comedy is storytelling, but there oh, is yeah. a specific technique of storytelling that's more like um I forget. Like there's like in the US there's a lot of poetry slams. Mhm. And poetry slams are different than comedy. They have a different feel, they have a different technique. But in order to really excel at a poetry slam, you have to really have strong storytelling techniques but in a rhythmic kind of way and although comedy is also storytelling in a rhythmic way they're different rhythms yeah and so sometimes when somebody when there is like a booming industry in an area of the world sometimes the person that's in the lead is just the person that has really owned what their rhythm is for storytelling because that's that's kind of what gives like there's plenty of people that do comedy but no comedian is ever like the other and it's because you find your own delivery you find your own rhythm you find your own style of storytelling and you also find your own style of content for yeah. the story like i am actually like i am in comedy yes but i'm in the genre of solo performance which means my shows usually feel a cross between a play that you would find say at your local musical theater and a cross between stand up because my signature shows do have music in them and there's songs that I've written to help support the show in a comedic way and sometimes those songs can't be delivered in a stand up monologue sometimes those songs are better served to reveal some details of the character in song that's more fun for the audience and it also gives a little bit more variety to the show where people are surprised 
So because of that, that's not quite stand-up, but I borrow the techniques of stand-up to achieve it to be really, really funny. So I recently started again, you know, like watching more comedies on Netflix because it's pandemic, you have free time, obviously. So why not? So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the, so there are two female comedians. I love them. And one of them is Nikki Glasser. Am I? Uh, so which, which show do you like of hers? So uh, one thing is her podcast with Joe Rogan. It, it just blew my mind. She was so funny in the podcast itself, the way she talks and all that stuff. But otherwise, I don't remember the Netflix special I watched, her, watched of her. She has, I guess, two or three of them. Uh, I love them. And she also do really great roasts with uh, Robert De Niro. Yeah, she roasted Robert De Niro. So what's interesting in this conversation is you know you love her, but you can't remember what it was about. Which I find so, interesting. So I don't know the uh, name of her special, but I definitely know the kind of comedy she is doing. So she is doing deeply vulnerable personal stories. And I know this because I'm not following a lot of comedians. I'm just following, you know, like a few of is them. Is she the one that does the big show on anxiety? Possibly. That sounds like her. I don't know, but that sounds like her. Yeah. I'm not sure I love that, like deep quirky vulnerable there's different types of quirky right like yeah. quirky is a spectrum <laughs> i would say i'm a quirky performer but i'm not like the girl who does the netflix show on anxiety like there is a i forget her name and maybe this is nikki maybe this is not nikki but okay. there was a show on netflix that was about anxiety and i got 20 minutes in and i couldn't finish it because i was just like Oh my God, I can't. And I don't know if it's because I'm a performer and so I'm feeling how much she's dying on stage and I like can't stand it or what, but I couldn't get through that show on Netflix. <laughs> so the other one was, uh, again, I don't know if I'm naming, uh, if I'm pronouncing the name rightly, but she's uh, Taylor Tomlinson. Is that the right name? She has a uh, Netflix special, uh, Quarter Life Crisis. Amazing one, amazing one. Uh, anyway, so that brings me to the connection that I wanted to have was how difficult it is. Again, I have no idea of this industry, but my perception is based on the YouTube comments that I have read. Plus, I wanted to ask you because you belong to this industry. It's super tough for female comedians to grow. Um, I think it's tough for any comedian to grow. Um but I do think women have an extra issue because um, when you do comedy, like when I was doing that Friday night thing, mm -hmm. I was often the only girl there. And I remember some of the guys telling me that I should stop doing my type of comedy and the team because it was annoying. And um, looking back, um, the types of things that I generated live on an audience were different than what the men did. And it was very interesting to me how my male counterparts were like, yeah, you shouldn't do this. This is not good. It's like always the same thing. 
but they didn't realize that the reason why I fell into that type of character was because someone had to ground their insane sanity of comedy because if an audience just experiences the high, 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 high of laughter, but they don't have a grounded center point, the audience gets exhausted and they disengage. You can, and you have to be cognizant of this as a performer, you can exhaust your audience with laughter. And it's your job as the person that's leading the show to know and feel when those moments are to pull back. And so it was interesting to me. And at the time I had low self-confidence. I was like, oh no, I'm not going to make it. And people hate me. You know, it was like all that stuff. But looking back, oh my gosh, I realized that that was a male and female dynamic issue. And because I was often the, like there were nights on Friday nights, I was one of maybe two women the whole entire night. Um, And that's really common. So if you have 15 performers that are comedy in the club, there's usually two to three, maybe max four women there. And what's interesting is the audience usually has men and women, but the performers Mm. are usually only male. So what ends up happening is the men lead very eloquently with their type of characters, Mm. but they often can't succeed at the type of characters that women like to watch. Mm. And so sometimes the audience will be like, Oh my God, that was a great show. And then you find out they're like, yeah, it's a great show, but it was also a shit show. Excuse my French, but that's just the term. And it was also that because there wasn't the true collaboration. There wasn't the secure collaboration between people. So even in comedy, if you aren't secure in your abilities, you're not a great collaborator. And it's the same thing in the workplace. So I think women have in comedy have an extra hurdle to jump through because we have to show like why the characters we create are relevant and why people should care, why people should hire us to do those characters, why audience members should pay a ticket to come see those characters in that content. But the industry as a whole is really hard to manage a career and break through. Like it takes dedication. Like I was, I'm this past weekend, I'm celebrating 10 years in Chicago and I moved to Chicago for the comedy scene. And so I was kind of having this like reflection time this weekend. And I realized between my day job career, building my company, my production company and building my craft, I have clocked already about 20 to 25,000 hours of becoming pro. Now they say it takes 10,000 hours to become expert at something. So we're we're rolling around the bend but that that's like my business time that's my craft time that's my coaching time so it's not just solely comedy but it takes more than one skill to have a comedy career and I think that's what people don't realize is sometimes it's better just to really rock your own humor style in your life and get those benefits because oftentimes Mm. The reason why people want a comedy career is they want to look cool, 
but it's a lot of work to look cool. You could just become really good at your humor style and be cool in your own life. <laughs> and actually, I'm having this one question when you mentioned, you know, like it's not easy to get a breakthrough in a comedy career, right? And when I think about any art related field, wherever there is any art or creativity, is there any creativity related field where it's easier for the person to get by? Mm. Um, I've been into like writing or I've been into this life coaching. Life coaching is again, a lot of art, right? It's not easy to get a breakthrough in life coaching. There's so many coaches struggling. Both of us know the industry there also. Yeah. I think that the reason why coaching is hard is because it takes a lot of skills to build a business. But the question is, uh, so well, we can talk about this also, but my question was, is there any creativity related career where you think breakthrough is like relatively easier? I think that um, this is coming after all my experience. I ultimately ended up building my own company so that I could work and get my return on investment off of my comedy tuition I spent. <laughs> yeah. But looking at it now, I do think it's easier just to audition for somebody else's show and get cast in their show and have them foot the bill. So I do think that any creative field that you're doing it as a job is easier than someone who's yes. doing it as an entrepreneur. So likewise, so if you, if you, that's kind of how I answer writer, that question. If you are again, you know, working as a content writer, a good writing job you may get a lot of you know payments and all but you're essentially working for somebody else interesting uh, yeah but in in creative fields and this is kind of the catch-22 is that <laughs> if you have a creative job and it's great and it pays you and it's amazing that's awesome except for when you do it on your own you make more money so it's almost like the job is like easy money right now. And then if you're an entrepreneur in the creative, you kind of go like this for a while, but then you eventually go like this <laughs> in terms of what your life is like in the, in the interim. <laughs> yeah. So it's not incremental, it's exponential, even if it's like this or it's like this, it, it's not like this. It's always either or either this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all over the place. <laughs> And I feel like the pressure is greater in the entrepreneurial side because like, it's all on you. Yeah. And if you don't have that skill for like that X, Y, Z thing that you need, you got to go learn that skill. Like, even though I, I'm in comedy and I write great comedy during the pandemic, I had to learn better copywriting because the rules of copywriting are different than the rules of comedy writing and they are different than necessarily article writing. And yeah, so like the true totally. sales copy kind of copywriting, I had to like take classes on it. That was one of the things I did in the pandemic. So I, I read about this because obviously I belong to marketing circles also, uh, that a copywriter is essentially a salesperson who knows how to write a little. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way. That's an excellent way to describe a copywriter. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, what you mentioned, you know, like uh, coaching in a career in comedy is not just about comedy. Uh, so I'm reading this book called Skip the Line by James Altucher. Do you know oh, that person? I oh, am my goodness. And I'm actually where, you know, like he talks about his comedy thing. Uh, like how you can get better at comedy how so you can skip the line i just started it i got it yesterday from the library <laughs> so i am oh. not as far as you into it but um someone recommended it to me in in my my new launch so that we're having kind of this party over so <laughs> yeah and uh, so this is an amazing book i mean have you known this person the writer before this no have you read about it so he's basically, uh, I don't know, he tries something differently like every three, four years. He has been an investor, a writer, like New York best-selling writer. So whatever he does is not just an average kind of thing. He, like, he was a chess grandmaster. And now he is, for the past few months or years, he's trying his hand in comedy. So he writes about this, that how... You know, you don't have to wait like 10, 15, 20 years before getting your special, like, you know, your solo spot or whatever you call it in the industry terms. Uh, you, I, I have got, so like he was talking that he has got it in maybe like a few years, less than a few years, one or two years or something like that. Because he constantly uh, did experiment on, you know, like how do he, how can he improve his skills? How can he improve his network? So as you were mentioning that a career in comedy is not just about comedy. So likewise, a career in comedy, as far as I understood, is also about sales, a little bit of micro skill in sales, micro skill in networking, micro skill in public speaking, micro skill in writing and all those different kinds of stuff. Yeah, that was actually argued too. And I don't know if he was second city trained, but you've got to, you got to know what makes a great show. Yeah. Um, and you don't really know that for sure until you test on an audience, but there are, there are craft things that you do to make sure the audience has a, Ooh, I'm coming back with my friends kind of feel because a lot of people don't realize that if they master that, their life gets easier because people come back and bring more people. You know, it's kind of like the, the, I don't know if you've ever done this, but there might be a movie that you're just dying to see in the theater and it's yeah. so good and you feel so great about it that you find some more friends to go back the following weekend. And that is the yeah. greatest way to make money off of your runs and that takes a certain kind of skill and that's a skill that comes from being well trained and so that's a micro skill as well yeah totally and uh, i was testing this theory again because i was reading this book and contemplating on how coaching has a lot of micro skills like there is yep. this the uh, you know uh, enrollment process is one of the micro skills uh, retaining a client is one of the micro skills. Uh, sales, negotiation, marketing, admin work, all of those are 
different micro skills and he this trainings to make sure that you have up-to-date skills and that you aren't going to harm someone that you can help someone because there are some untrained coaches that are making it hard for the good coaches to because you know people get burned from coaches that weren't a good fit yeah so that's kind of my uh topic for the next youtube video i just wrote it down i'm just going to go and on a rant about like you know what not all the coaches are bad <laughs> listen to what my clients are saying <laughs> this is what she mentioned this is what this you, client mentioned do you get that a lot in your sales conversations uh not honestly so in india coaching is still a lot new field a, a, a couple of uh, public speakers are really popular in india so they usually ask like are you this person do you like do this thing and i'm i have to tell them that i'm not a motivational speaker i'm a life coach and it's a different thing so then they ask are you a therapist like do you people help people with depression then i have to you know like in depth tell them that okay this is what a coach does and mm, so it's relatively among the coaches it's relatively new in india but then again you know uh, <laughs> so let's talk about this only <laughs> what happened in the past few months uh, since the pandemic uh, i'm a total believer and i know you, deep down you also believe that world is inherently a good place there are good people right uh, all of us needed mental health support in different degrees all of us needed it some people were not aware that there are therapy and coaching options and you know other different like mentorship and other options available people didn't know although therapy in india is relatively cheaper you can get online therapy on call like 10 15 dollars per session which is anyway a lot cheaper if you just want to have one or two sessions but people didn't know there was option so a lot of people uh, like general people who had no idea about mental health or all that stuff but who had read a couple of quotes or a couple of books with good intention came up and started posting on their stories and you know instagram feeds that if you want somebody to talk i'm here so what happened a really uh, like a popular actor died by suicide last year wait what a pop- a popular actor in india died of suicide last year mm. so people were more sentimental they you know like they had good intentions at their heart but what started happening uh, a couple of them started charging people who had no training whatsoever number one number two they started offering that you know like if you have depression if you have anxiety i'm here to help you so you know because it was so unregulated the things got a little out of hand and the result of it was the psychologist community became so angry about it and they started bashing all the life coaches and you know mentors and all the influencers particularly so there was this common uh, hate that i'm seeing in again it could be just a statistical bias but i have seen a few therapists in india talking a lot about do not go for coaching it's a fraud it's a you know it's a fraud thing mm-hmm. uh go for a therapist or go for coaches who are highly credentialed and stuff like that and most of the people who talk about all this are those people who haven't taken a coaching session in the first place so that's another something you know to think about 
then we also saw a lot of Tony Robbins, uh, you know. So they, I don't know again, it, it's probably a statistical bias because I'm reading a lot of stuff like this. So uh, there are a few articles where people mentioned how they were negatively impacted by Tony Robbins. Negatively impacted? Yeah. Like yeah. he, have you read any of those comments or reviews? So <clears throat> I, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm not a fan of Tony Robbins for how he teaches the masculine and feminine energies, which mm -hmm. is um, a way to describe um, relationship communication. Mm -hmm. I think um, I've never taken and paid for his training. So I will make that disclaimer, but I do know of someone who has taken his training and gave me his login to his coaching thing. And he's like, no, you should know this. This is what he does. And um, I found it to be a little bit of a sexist kind of training yeah. that was really damaging to people. And um, I actually have a few memes about it in this launch for this <laughs> course, because I am outraged that it doesn't reference Tony Robbins by all means. Yeah. But it references that theory because I don't think, I don't think he was well-trained enough or had well-researched the masculine feminine energies to teach almost, it in a more effective way. So he almost, as far as I know, he almost finished his NLP course. So he did a certification in NLP, but just before the certification, he needed to put in a certain number of hours maybe, or he needed to wait for some time. So he... Uh, backed off he dropped out of it but he like almost finished his nlp certification so what i am more concerned of is whenever somebody talks about that they're a life coach or something like that uh, i'm more interested in knowing that instead of certification the first thing i want to know have you worked with your own mm, yep because the certification part what i have seen so when i started the first two 250 hours that I, you know, uh, coached people was without any certification, but I invested a lot in my courses and hiring my own coaches. So mm -hmm. I'm really, you know, like concerned with this fact, either of these two, A, do you have your own coach or have you worked with your own coach or B, have you had any certification? Because either of these make you at least competent enough to start. I don't know again, your skills, your intentions and all that part. But these are at least a little, these, this gives us a, an idea that you are serious about what you're doing. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think that's interesting that the pandemic had that happen that way in India. I think in the US, there was a lot of coaches that, you know, didn't have training, never hired a coach, but man, in yeah. the pandemic, we we had a lot of unemployed people. So prior to the <laughs> pandemic on LinkedIn, in the US, there was only 2 million coaches. But when the pandemic hit, it was all of a sudden 6 million coaches. And so Goodness. does that mean that everyone got trained in a month? Because I'm pretty sure you didn't have training and I'm also pretty sure you didn't have a coach. So why are you calling yourself a coach? And so we didn't have the bashing of the industry like what you had, 
we definitely had an issue with people claiming to be something that they were not. Yeah, yeah. So in India, there's one thing that's definitely a little tough is getting a certification in coaching. So when you go for ICF kind of coaching, they charge thousands of dollars, which is quite unaffordable for, you know, like most of the Indian people. And that's one of the reasons I was not certified. I didn't take up any certification. Uh, it's the same uh, way in the US. But the, I have purchasing capacity, the purchasing capacity is different, no? Like people in US and people in India. So the living costs are different, but there's so many, there's so much expense living in the US. Yeah, I understand. That I personally like, will I do ICF one day? Sure. But in the US, I don't think that ICF, ICF training makes you a better coach. I actually think getting like my <laughs> training program with all of my, my certificates over here, um, the reality is that training is ICF eligible. So if I were to mm, go get ICF, I wouldn't have to take as many courses. I would only have to, I would have to pay less money. But being connected with an alumni network of my school, because I went to coaching school for two years to get my credentials, just because I wanted to serve my clients in a deeper way, because that was valuable to me. What I can say is that the coaches that did do the ICF um, maybe make more money, but they're not necessarily better coaches. For sure, for sure. <laughs> Surprisingly, Tony Robbins don't have a certification. <laughs> and again, we are not talking about how good a coach a person is. We are talking about how good money they make. So definitely the example fits there. Yeah. I actually wonder if the skill set that makes you good at sales is not the same skill set that makes you as good as a coach. And so part of me wonders if because it takes so many micro skills to be a coach. Yeah. Part of me wonders, um, and there's a plane going overhead, so I don't know if you can hear that, but um, part of me wonders if like, because in the US I've heard another coach say, the coaches that are good at sales aren't actually good at coaching and the coaches that are good at coaching are not good at sales. And I think that might be partially true because I have met some coaches and hired some coaches that were great at sales, but I learned how not to coach by do my coaching with them because <laughs> I learned a few things, but I've also had really great coaches. So I've definitely yeah. am someone that I've experienced both, but when you have a coach, that's not a great fit, it is not fun. <laughs> so I actually, uh, on, uh, on a similar note, uh, currently I'm working with Koi Lee. He's from Australia and he has a sales background. He's a sales and business coach and he has done his certifications in NLP and all that stuff. So he is equally an amazing life coach. So I don't have that experience where you, I can say, you know, like a person who is good at sales might not be good at coaching. Uh, with this one person, you know, uh, the coach I have right now, Koeli is amazing in life coaching as well as sales coaching. So anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> life coaching, as I was mentioning, so when I was having the same thing, you know, I didn't have 
lot of money to invest in icf credentials or anything so what i did i found out a community of uh, coaches who were coaching each other uh, you know for practice so i got a lot of coaching from people who otherwise were going from icf training and i know it's not really ideal to say that that trained me but then again we always do what we think is you know what we can do best at the moment uh, and then uh, we had this habit coaching from coach.me and it was i guess less than 200 dollars at that time that was affordable <laughs> yeah compared to like the thousands and thousands that icf is yeah i think sometimes you can go broke from just doing every single certification because um, anytime you take a training, whether it's comedy school, college, coaching school, a certification, it's like the window that you're spending learning. And then there's the window that you're applying and integrating. And then there's the window that you actually make the money back. Mm. And so what I see a lot in the U.S. is coaches will take this program and this program and this program and this program and they'll do it all at once while holding down a job. And then after a couple of years, they're like, wow, I'm really in debt because, you know, 5,000 here, 8,000 there, 10,000 there. And some of these people have really good jobs. They have six figure jobs so they can afford all of those things all at once. But then there's the time to get good. And if you're in eight different things, you're not really taking the time to learn. Like one of the things I did in comedy school is I only took one conservatory at a time. And I had classmates who took several conservatories because you can get a conservatory in directing, filmmaking, Mm -hmm. um, writing, music, and regular improv. And I chose the music because I wanted to have a more well-rounded skill set. They're all great programs, but you don't necessarily have to take four of them at once. Yeah, because if you're taking four conservatories at once, then you're not really and you're auditioning for shows, you're not really developing your skill, you're just staying busy. And so sometimes I think what you did is you did with what you could do at the best at the best case that you could at the time. Yeah, but you found ways to get your reps in. And I think sometimes building the reps like in comedy isn't just performing. Sometimes it's reading a book and enhancing your point of reference for the material you talk about, you know, like the, the craft building can be multiple different things. Totally. And it's, I think and, the same thing with coaching, which is why I feel like I do double duty. Cause I have to do all the micro skills of the comedy and I have to do the micro skills of the coaching, which makes me feel very busy. <laughs> I can feel that and possibly it's a good thing because it's an intersection of the things that you will not see in a lot of coaches in this world mm. at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to know this. Oh, by the way, you must be seeing me, you know, like being really uncomfortable sitting. It's basically because I worked out last, yesterday after two months and this is the result of like just 10 squats that I did. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry about it. <laughs> oh, anyway. oh my gosh. <laughs> so this was a clean humor. 
ये लेवल वन आई एम रियली क्यूरियस टू आस्क यू अबाउट दिस पार्ट डू यू इंक्लूड स्पिरिचुअलिटी इन योर कोचिंग आई नो यू ऑब्वियसली बिकॉज वी हैव बीन टॉकिंग अ लॉट ओवर द लास्ट सिक्स मंथ्स आई लव हैविंग कन्वर्सेशंस विद यू एंड सो इट्स इट्स द वे वी एक्चुअली टॉक इज जस्ट लाइक वी सेंड ईच अदर पोस्ट कार्ड्स लाइक ऑलमोस्ट नेवर वी आर ऑनलाइन एट द सेम टाइम लाइक मे बी वन समर so it's like sending <laughs> postcards <laughs> like i'm sending all the postcards right now and you'll be sending it back to me <laughs> as i was saying i we have been talking a lot for the past few 5 6 7 months and i know you are a spiritual person right but i'm curious to ask uh, do you include spirituality in your coaching um i really look at it helping the client build their legacy no matter how old they are because in the US talking spirituality and religion is quite a crossfire in our culture right now there's a lot of upheaval in that so when i recognize that a client has certain values i do help them embrace their spirituality in whatever viewpoint they have um and usually the angle that people love talking about spirituality is building a life that leaves a legacy when you die and that goes on beyond your time here and usually when you start to have deeper conversations about legacy spirituality naturally comes up and that is when i really embrace um and if the client is like tell me more about your specific beliefs Well then I definitely take that time to talk about but I don't shove it down their throat because there are many coaches, many speakers, yeah. many therapists in the US specifically especially in certain parts of our country but that's all they do and they feel it's their job to make you more like them and what has mm. happened I don't know if India has this but in the US what has happened is it's made everyone resistant to anyone of that discipline because it's, actually, it's just uh, being shoved down the throat i don't believe it's a us or a india thing it's more of a gen z and millennial thing i am not sure but i'm going to make a guess here that millennials are relatively less so the number of atheists would be more in millennial generation and even more in the gen z gen yeah gen z generation just making a guess here but i'm quite sure that it's going to be the case um i don't know if that statistically sound it probably is yeah. um i know in my dating life it's really disappointing when i meet someone and they're an atheist and like well it's not going to work sorry um and i hmm. do i do think that that is I do see that there are a lot of millennials who are atheists. Um I'm not sure that there's more than previous generations though. I think there are still atheists that I've met that are in older generations that are Gen X and baby boomer. I've still met atheists mm-hmm. in those generations. But the people who are spiritual in those generations are very loud. They're very very yeah. loud. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think the people who are spiritual and millennial and Gen Z are as loud. So I would have to 
research what the data says on are there more atheists at the younger generations and the older generations but i think i do know where your theory comes from because it does feel that way because i think oh. there is a different gap in how we express our spirituality possibly uh, and i'm curious to know that so spirituality is it a deal breaker when you like date someone um back in the day i didn't care <laughs> <laughs> and now i do and the reason this is kind of maybe more the involvement the evolvement and the evolution of jennifer doherty but i have really come aware of in this pandemic that um there are certain people that don't really believe in spirituality and it would be really hard to be married to them i think mm. back when i was just in dating to date and experience different kinds of people i was more open to like i'm here to see what anyone's like and you know it's kind of like what I, what a mentor once called the collecting data space <laughs> where you just meet like every type of man because you, you want to know you want to go out with the nerd you want to go out with the jock you want to go out with every type of man so you can see what you like and it doesn't mean you have to be sexually promiscuous but it just means you want to see what other people are like and um during the pandemic i realized i really want to be married i really want to share my life with someone and when i honestly looked internally i realized that with the level of spirituality that i have it'd be really hard to be in a relationship with someone who did not share those same values because what would happen mm. over time is the other person's view cuz like when you're in marriage you rub off on each other and if yeah. you're married to someone who doesn't at least share at least somewhat the same spirituality that you do what starts to happen is you rub off on them they rub off on you and you might ultimately lose some of your spirituality and i read a book this um past spring um the sacred search and it's about it's it's about spirituality and the christian faith okay. and it's it's really about what happens and its premise is that you know you're going to get married you know this month but what what's your life going to be like in 10 years and mm. is that person in 10 years are you going to be crying tears of sadness or are you going to be crying tears of joy and what i realized in that book is that what gives you the promise of the tears of joy is when the person you're married to shares your beliefs whether you're spiritual whether you're atheist whatever your beliefs are as long as you share them with your counterpart you're more uh -huh. likely to feel happier in 10 years because you united over your values and not that the person was hot uh I know that that was kind of a lot. <laughs> no, I I'm, I'm actually thinking of how I kind of didn't even think about this part. So I was an atheist for 2 years maybe one or 2 years uh when I was going through depression and anxiety and it was my way of you know like I just lost all faith and hope. And after that I became spiritual and all that. I was quite religious before that but there was a time period of 
one or two years and one of my most intense relationship happened during that time and the girl was a lot religious and i didn't have any issue back then but afterwards i don't know it was never on my list to be honest so far it has not been on my list maybe then again i need to meet a really really misaligned person to have this a priority on my list well i think i have had that relationship of a misalignment <laughs> on faith and i know what the consequences were and i've done my homework i've researched i've read tons of books on why it's a value and i continue to read those books as a relationship coach so that i am well aware of other dynamics so that when i'm coaching someone i am not just trained in coaching and have done the work with my own coach but then i am mm. up on like what others experience beyond my own experience because yeah. that's of service to the client and it also makes me a better human and what I've just uncovered from everything that I've read and the studies that I've read and the psychology things that I've uncovered, I've just personally believe that a good marriage comes from sharing really good values. And one of those values is, do you agree on the spirituality? Now, there might be some couples that make it work if one's a, in Judaism and one's a Muslim or one's a Christian and couples make that work all the time yeah, yeah but I think what makes those couple work is they share the same values they just choose a different flavor of their spirituality but at the heart of who they are they're the same and I think sometimes I know for a fact I have been with a man who claimed to be a Christian but he was actually an atheist oh. and um in reality and and in the relationship, it really, um, there was some trauma involved because there were certain things that happened that if he would have had better values, I don't think he would have treated me that way. And so it's just something that I've learned. Like when I get married in 10 years of my marriage, I'm not married yet. I'm single right now, but I'm putting myself in that shoes I want to be crying tears of joy on my 10 year mm. anniversary, not tears of sadness. Yeah. And so I've really come to terms with that. Uh, so I just uh, like today I posted on Instagram about uh, Depanshu's perfect system on creating relationship issues. So <laughs> the number one in <laughs> the number one in that is always overcompensate. And, you know, uh, believe in those Instagram quotes that says if your partner doesn't give you as much as you give them, it's not a good relation. And when you overcompensate, always feel that whatever your partner is giving you is not good enough, right? Uh, and I feel one of the reasons why I haven't felt that need of spirituality, a connection of values, alignment of values, is probably I haven't really paid attention to you know, or maybe I, I was always overcompensating it so much that I didn't take a step back and, you know, align all of that stuff. And it will be interesting to see how it turns out in the future. But in the past, this has been the case. Probably. Yeah. And we're all on our own involvement, even as coaches, like who we are okay. 10 years ago is not who we are today. But what makes us really good coaches is that we continue to grow. 
So this just might be, who knows? You might in 10 years feel like Jen was crazy. I like, I like being married to someone who's not my values and, and that's cool. We're all good. But yeah. I think you asked me and that's my personal take. <laughs> that, that reminds me of a meme that I read recently, you know, like uh, me as a coach. Oh my God, me too. saying that over and over again and I know I've said that a lot in my head whenever I'm coaching a class <laughs> <laughs> but anyway interesting thing and oh I'm on a roll I made like three or four humorous jokes within the conversation such a good well that's because we're in a collaborative communication <laughs> process and I think you're being secure and I'm being secure so the, the comedy just rolls we're demonstrating that, it right now. <laughs> that makes total sense. So here's a mental note to myself. Set filters on Tinder, only date comics. <laughs> <laughs> only date comics. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so... <laughs> Oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you this question. So this was the exact statement that I read. Again, I'm not being offensive here, but it's just the conception that I have heard from YouTube comments, which is a great place to get educated. So I read that, you know, you're a female, you're not funny. You're not supposed to be funny. This is one of the statements that I've heard over and over and over again. Have you seen any patterns that actually females are not funny or only a few females are funny? anything like that? I think it's the perception of what female comics do their material on. Okay. And I've looked at the studies on this. Like there are studies that audiences prefer a male comic over a female comic. And the data is un, hasn't been fully tested to figure out why that is. It could be cultural bias we're so used to seeing men as comics that we have a hard time adjusting to that a female can be funny. Um, part of it is the Hollywood contracts that get done are driven by men. And those yeah. men relate to issues that men talk about. And oftentimes the buyers of the comedy are not always attuned to the issues that women have. You see it in the movies in the U.S. where like a female dominant film is under pressure of will they actually get a return at the box office because Hollywood doesn't know if female dominated films will make it's it. Everywhere. Yeah. And so I think that this is sort of the evolvement in our society that we have to have is we have to help our audience be okay with more female driven things and we also have to on the business side be okay that female driven things can make money and so I do think though that most and I do I've really assessed that about the 50 percent of the people that pursue me for coaching are men and mm -hmm. in my comedy yeah 50%. Like even the new clients that I had this spring, 50% of them are men. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I don't know why that is. It could be a fluke, just what it is, or it could be that they resonate with it. I don't know. Sometimes, like I had a client this spring who was a male student and his mom paid for the program, but he chose me as his coach. Mm. So I'm not sure. I never asked him. I probably could have like, why did you choose me as a coach? But sometimes that's awkward. So I didn't want to do it. But I was curious because yeah. I, I have had that. And, and most of the coaching industry is dominant by women seeking coaching. So it's kind of a outlier. Why do men pursue me as a coach? Uh, yeah, it totally depends. You know, like most of the life coaches, uh, oh, sorry most of the people seeking life coaching are females most of the people seeking business coaches are mostly men that's what and i, I think that's why i think there's something in my online marketing because i'm so businessy and i and i have such a career mm-hmm. focus the gentleman who did pursue me this spring was seeking out career support so that could be that my marketing is attracting people that do want to work on their careers. Like my course is about how do you create more awareness to have better humor so that you can up your salary. So there is mm. the reality that men will be attracted to that. And yeah. that launches this week, which is why I'm super excited. We had this thing this yeah. week, cause it's just a celebratory moment. Um, But what I can say is that my comedy also men really resonate with it. And I am in the after parties that I've had, I've always get curious, what did you love about the show? And then, and then they'll say something like, no, you can be real. Like if you didn't like the show, tell me and tell me why you didn't like it because I want to make it better. And then that's usually when the man goes, I really loved it because you didn't bash men as a whole. You bashed the Mm. douchebag but you didn't bash men as an entire um, organization of people. And I think that's where, unfortunately, a lot of female comics and, and there is a market for it and it's very needed, but we can't expect to have men rise up and meet us where we need them if we're constantly bashing them. And so that's where my comedy is a little different. And that is actually why people sign up for my email list because they know it's not going to be bashing. It's not going to be belittling and they're going to feel empowered reading the email. Yes. Yes. And I kind of remember Whitney Cummings is one of them, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. I'm a man, but when something is funny, no matter how dark it is, I love. <laughs> I love. Yes. <laughs> and you know, there is a lot of great dark comedy and there's sometimes some jokes that I make that are really dark. And so like, woohoo, raise the roof. But in the US, I have had men approach me and say, so how am I supposed to be now? Am I supposed to open the door for you? Am I so like, just tell me, please, what am I supposed to do? Because I am so confused. And it's, and I, and, I, and I feel for him because there was kind of this huge movement in the U.S. and then globally. And, yeah. But it's still sort of percolating in the U.S. now that we finally have a female vice president. So there's still a current of this. And, you yeah. know, I feel for them. I feel for men because it's like, how do we teach? <laughs> if, if the other way was wrong, then we have to teach them what is the right way. And I, we've just left our men really confused. <laughs> 
you know it's actually uh, that that meme again uh, like yeah i want to be empowered and all that stuff but i also want to marry someone really rich and not have to work i would want to <laughs> do that <laughs> and i don't want to feel insulted if i do that <laughs> but so i totally get it what you're mentioning uh, interesting and i know that you have to go right now and trust me my hips have like given up for now i just cannot my hips are given up like they have given up ah. i cannot stretch <laughs> any more longer <laughs> and actually i am not kidding i did like 10 12 uh, squats only but it was after 2 yeah. months <laughs> i wasn't aware this was going to happen anyway uh, <laughs> so thank you so much jennifer for coming here doing this i so much enjoyed the last one and a half hours i had with you and i'm so looking forward to doing this again within a few months <laughs> yay yes and then um if anyone is interested this course does help you get the foundation to embrace your own humor style and get those relationship benefits and those um like i said executives and leaders and people at any level of their organization um can increase their career financial outcomes by embracing a good healthy humor style so uh, i'm putting up the link in the description somewhere so find the link and work with jennifer in whatever <laughs> way you can she is such an amazing person and i hope to see you see you jennifer again soon and whoever is watching and listening see you in the next episode bye bye bye